Well, hey, welcome to First Church. So glad you guys are here. If you're new, my name's Chad. Welcome. We're glad you decided to carve out some time and be with us for worship today. In addition to this great crowd we have on site, I know we have a whole bunch of people joining us online. I just checked and we have David and we have the Long Singer family and Kathy and a whole bunch of others. So if you are here in the room today, would you get loud, put your hands together, welcome in our online family. Let them know we're glad that they're joining us as well today. And I just want to second what Matt just told you a second ago. Next week is our Celebration Sunday for Unstoppable. You're not going to want to miss it. We're going to reveal the Unstoppable gift amount that was given over the past two years. So we're excited to announce that. And we also have some future plans we're going to roll out. So we are pumped about what's going to take place next Sunday. Every Sunday here is a can't-miss Sunday. But next Sunday is especially a can't-miss Sunday. You want to be here for that as we celebrate all that God is doing in this place. And so it's going to be a memorable day for sure. But I'm also pumped because today we are continuing in our series Alpha and Omega. And as we get started, I want to show you guys a video that I found the other day. And it's a video of my son. I've actually shown this video before, but it's been a few years. I was going through my laptop looking at old pictures, old videos. And I found this video of my son when he was like three or four years old-ish. And at that time, one of his favorite movies was the movie Sing. And I'm not sure if you've seen this movie, but Sing is this cartoon movie about a bunch of animals in a singing competition, kind of like American Idol. I mean, it sounds like a great premise for a movie, doesn't it? But actually, it's pretty good. I like it. I like the second Sing movie as well. And my son loved it. We watched this movie over and over and over and over again. And there's this character in the movie named Johnny, who's this gorilla. And he has this breakout moment where he sings this solo. And it's just a real powerful moment in the movie. And one time when we were watching it, my wife, Allison, just said, yeah, get it, Johnny. Well, Alex, who was, like I said, three or four at the time, heard her say that. And then from that point on, every time Johnny would sing, he would shout out, get it, Johnny, get it, Johnny. And we filmed him doing this one time. And I want to show you this video. Take a look. I love how he's all about Johnny. Get it, Johnny, get it, Johnny. Who's Johnny? So that's great. Love it. Keep that thought in mind just for a second, okay? Hold on to that. We're in a series right now, Alpha and Omega, and we are looking at probably what is one of the most misunderstood and probably misused books in all the Bible, and that's the book of Revelation. And what's interesting to me is the book of Revelation, a lot of people stay away from it because I think they approach it with the wrong assumptions. They assume that Revelation is going to answer certain questions certain questions that maybe God never intended it to answer, or they assume it's going to give them certain pieces of information that maybe God didn't intend for it to give. And so they approach Revelation with the wrong assumptions, and then they end up getting discouraged, or they're confused, or maybe they misuse it because they're trying to get out of the book 
what it was never intended to give. And so what we want to do in this series is we want to look at Revelation in its original context. We want to look at the original context in which God gave it because it is God's word. And this book was given to us for a reason, but we want to see what God intended from this book and what he wants to give us through it. And when you actually read it and read it in its original context, I think it's a book that is full of hope and encouragement. In fact, listen to what John says. We've looked at this verse before in verse three of chapter one as he opens up this book of Revelation. He says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. Revelation was meant to be a blessing. It was never meant to scare the church, but strengthen it. It tells us how to live under God's blessing in the midst of crazy and chaotic times. And notice what else John says. He says that we are to keep what is written in it, do what is written in it, meaning it's a practical book. This wasn't supposed to be some mysterious secretive book that only a few people would ever understand or that wouldn't make any sense for until 2,000 years, until after it was written. No, this was a book that was meant to be lived out. It was meant to be practical. And I believe that when you look at Revelation in its original context, what you will discover is Revelation provides us with unshakable hope in the midst of uncertain times. It provided the first century church that was suffering that hope, and it provides that for us today as well. And one of the questions that Revelation wants to answer, and it repeatedly answers throughout the book, is this one right here. Who's really Lord. Because it's one thing to acknowledge intellectually that Jesus is Lord. It's one thing to talk about Jesus. It's another thing to really know who he is as Lord and live like he is Lord. And the first century Christians, they needed that question answered. And it's probably the most important question that we will ever answer. See, at the end of the first century, when this letter of Revelation was written, it was written when this guy named Domitian was the emperor of Rome. And Domitian was an evil tyrant who wanted everybody to bow down and worship him as a god. And the Christians living at the end of the first century couldn't do that because their, their worship only belonged to Jesus. And so Domitian saw Christianity as a threat to his power and authority, and persecution became the norm. Christians were losing their homes, they were losing their jobs, they were losing their very lives. In fact, all of the apostles, the original disciples of Jesus, had been martyred for their faith except for one. There's one who's still alive, his name is John. And John was exiled to an island prison called Patmos. One of our church members told me a couple weeks ago that he had actually visited the island of Patmos before on a trip, and he took a picture of it. This is a picture that he took, so thank you, Sam, for the picture. And I only point that out to let you know this is a real place. Now, it didn't look like that in John's day, but still, this is a real place that you can go visit today. Revelation was written to real people in a real place, in a real moment in history who were really struggling, really suffering. And when I say struggling, suffering, I'm not talking about minor inconveniences. They were losing their lives simply because of their faith in Jesus. And as they were looking around at the world, they were saying, okay, Jesus, we know what you promised. We know you promised that you would build your church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. I mean, Matthew 16 tells us that, right? I will build my church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's like, we know you said that, Jesus but it really looks like evil's winning right now. When you look around at the world and see darkness spreading and you see evil men doing evil things and you see the church suffering, 
it really looks bad, Jesus. So what are we to do? Where do we go from here? And some in the church were starting to believe the lie that in order to survive, they just needed to give Rome what it wanted. Just give Rome what it asked for. Just for a little while, just so you can keep the peace, just so you can live a more comfortable life. Just give Rome what it's asking for. Compromise, just a little bit, so that things would be a little bit better in this life. And the thing is, our culture is still telling us to do the same today. Our culture is saying, just give in. Just give in for a little while. It's not that big of a deal. Go along to get along so that your life will be more successful, less stressful, more comfortable, whatever. Give in to greed. Give in to sexual pressures. Give in to pride. Give in to selfishness. Give in to addictive behaviors. Give in to lust. Give in to isolation. Give in to the status quo. Give in to social norms. You name it. Just give in. That's how you survive. And we're tempted to do it. Because when we look around at all the powerful pressures that exist in our world, sometimes the easier option seems to be just go along to get along. And we believe the great lie, the great lie that says that we can find outside of God what only God can give us. We think that if we pursue the desires of this world and what the world is telling us to chase after, then we will find what our hearts, what our souls are longing for, and that is eternal, lasting love. See, all of us deep down want to be loved. We want to feel value and meaning. We want to know that we have purpose and that our life matters. And here's the thing, we can only find that in the God who designed us and created us. That's why David writes this in Psalm 63. David says, in your generous love, I am really living at last. If you wanna really live, You've got to live in relationship with the God who created you and who loves you. He is how we find true meaning and purpose in life. But I can't tell you how many times I have heard someone say to me, you know, I thought, I thought if I made this much money or I thought if I lived in that house in that neighborhood or I thought if I had these friends or drove that car, then I'd be happy then I'd feel satisfied. I thought if I had that fling or that affair, I thought that if I cut that corner at work, I thought that if I told that lie just that one time, I'd be happy. I thought that if I would, would just give in to the pressures of the culture, then I'd be happy. The problem is, as people have shared that stuff with me, it always ends the same way. I thought it would make me happy but it didn't. And the temporary happiness that it brought was short-lived. And then I felt more empty than before. And that's why we need to be reminded that when things look bad around us, when it looks like evil is winning, when Satan is out doing his thing, don't just look around as if that's your only option. If you want to survive and thrive in life, you gotta look up. You gotta look up to the greater reality than just what you see every single day around you. And that's why when we get to Revelation chapter four, Jesus invites John, and for that matter, us, because John is writing a letter to the church, 
Jesus invites us to look up and to go and see the throne room of heaven. And it's interesting because at the beginning of chapter four of Revelation, John is invited to enter into the throne room of heaven and tell us what he sees. And in the throne room, John sees a colossal worship service that is as big as the cosmos itself, as big as heaven itself. And John sees creatures, both angelic and human alike, bowing down, worshiping God on his throne, shaking the very foundations of heaven and earth with their praise. And we are invited to be a part of this. Why? Why, after John writes these specific words to the seven churches he was writing to that Jesus told him to write, why do we immediately get taken up into the throne room of heaven? It's because when you feel like worshiping the least is when you need it the most. And what we have just found out in Revelation 2 and 3, which we looked at last week, is that the church is suffering. And when you feel like worshiping the least, that's when you need it the most. You see, with all the pyrotechnics going on in the book of Revelation, because there's a lot going on in the book of Revelation, a lot of crazy stuff, crazy good stuff, a lot of crazy stuff going on in the book of Revelation. You know, like flashes of lightning and, you know, peals of thunder and you've got uh, locusts and you've got bowls of wrath and, you know, all this, all this weird stuff happening. At least it's weird when we hear that imagery. With all the pyrotechnics going on in the book of Revelation, it's easy to miss that one of the primary themes of this book is the theme of worship. Believe it or not, and you won't hear this or you won't read this in many of the paperback theology books that you're gonna buy to bookstore where guys are just trying to make money off of Revelation. But believe it or not, there are more profound worship passages in the book of Revelation than any other book in the New Testament. There are more profound, rich worship texts in the book of Revelation than any other book in the New Testament. Why? Because Revelation is trying to answer the question for us, who's really in charge? Who's really in control? Who is really Lord? And as followers of Jesus, we know the right answer in our heads. It's Jesus, Jesus, Lord, we're all about Jesus. Get it, Jesus. But sometimes when we see evil out doing its thing and we see darkness all around us, it's easy to lose sight of Jesus. It's kind of like whales. You know, whales are these majestic creatures, huge creatures that spend the majority of their time under the surface of the water. But they're mammals, so they need air like us. And they have to come up for air ever so often regularly in order to survive. And that's what it's like to be a follower of Jesus. We spend the majority of our time down here the majority of our time right now, I guess, down here. And we are in a situation that is complicated, complex at best, right? And we see all the darkness and all the stuff around us. And ever so often, regularly, we have to leave down here and come up for air and breathe the air of heaven so that we will know there is a greater reality than just what we see around us so that we will not just survive, but we will thrive in this life. And that's why in Revelation chapter four, we see 
John being taken up into heaven because in the presence of God, our earthly fears assume their proper size and this is what the church needed to hear. So John receives this vision of heaven and he shares it with us and this is what he tells us. Revelation four, starting at verse one. After this, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven and the voice I heard first her, uh, I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet, this is Jesus, by the way, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So let's pause for a second because I want to break down this chapter four. Jesus is summoning John in a vision to come up and see what is happening in heaven, in the throne room of God. And I want you to notice something. We are welcome here. Jesus wants us here. He wants us to see this. See, some people say, you know, one day when I meet God, I'm going to be terrified. We're not terrified in the presence of God if we are part of his people. We are welcome in his presence. He wants us there. He has a place for us around his throne. And the door of heaven is wide open to his people. And then as we read on, it says in verse 2, it says, At once I was in the spirit, and there before me, was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Don't miss this. The first thing that captures John's attention is what? The throne that's in the center of the throne room and the one who is sitting on it. Now, there's a lot going on in this passage, and we're going to break it down, and there's a lot of crazy stuff happening. Like I said, crazy good stuff, but it's crazy. And there's going to be a lot of imagery and stuff that we talk about, but the first thing that John sees is what? The throne of God. His focus immediately goes to the throne, and that's where our focus needs to be today. Because with everything else going on around us, we've got to keep our eyes on the one who is seated on the throne. And then John starts to describe what the one seated on the throne looks like. He says, and the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Now, what is happening here, honestly, is I think John is stretching language to its limit. How do you describe the almighty God? And I think he's using apocalyptic language, imagery, symbols to try to describe the best he can what he sees. And so he starts to describe God who is sitting on the throne. And he says he has the appearance of Jasper. Now, Jasper is equivalent to our word diamond. In other words, God is glowing, beaming like a beautiful, pure diamond. Then it says in carnelian, carnelian would be equivalent to our ruby. So he is radiating with some type of red light in this moment. But I think what John is trying to tell us that God is as precious and as valuable and as bright as precious stones and gems. And then John changes the imagery a little bit and he says, a rainbow resembling an, an emerald encircled the throne. Now, typically rainbows don't look like emeralds, but again, I think what John is doing is he's stretching language to its limit here. He's trying to describe what he sees and it's almost impossible for him to do so. But the key word here is the word rainbow because what does the rainbow represent? In the Old Testament, the rainbow was a sign of God's promise. And what's going on in this passage? The rainbow is encircling the throne of God. It's in the image of a circle, meaning that God's promises never end. God's promises will never come to a close. God's promises are eternal. And the reason why we know that God will keep his, keep his promises is because the promises are encircling the throne of God, his authority, his power, his might. And we have the promise of knowing that God keeps his word to us. And then as we read on, John says, surrounding the throne 
were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. So what's this all about? Besides the throne of God, there are 24 other thrones and on these other thrones, there are 24 elders. Who, who are these people exactly? Well, remember numbers in apocalyptic literature are always important. They mean something bigger than just what's on the surface. And so the number 24 is a multiple of the number 12. 12 in apocalyptic literature and throughout the book of Revelation always represents the people of God. Think about it. There were 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament that represented God's Old Testament people. There were 12 apostles who launched the New Testament church, God's New Testament people. 12 and 12, 24. I think this is symbolic of all of God's people. There are more than 24 elders seated around the throne. These are... these. these Elders represent all of God's people throughout history, and we have some more evidence for that. When you look at what it says, it says that these elders were wearing robes of white. Throughout the book of Revelation, God's people are always wearing robes of white because they are those who have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, and they are pure and holy. Then we also see that they are wearing crowns on their head. It's God's people throughout the book of Revelation who are wearing crowns of victory on their heads because they are victorious with Jesus but then we also see something else. We see there were 24 of them. There were 24 sections of the priesthood in the Old Testament who were called the priests of God in the New Testament, but his people, the church. But then there's one more piece of evidence. It says they were sitting on thrones. What does that mean? Well, if you remember, Paul talks about this in 2 Timothy. Paul says in the book of 2 Timothy, if you want to go on to that next slide, he says, if we die with him, we will also live with him, live with Jesus. And if we endure, we will also reign with him. What is this an image of? It's an image of God's people who have been suffering, who've been hurting, who've been beaten up by this world. Now with Jesus, with God in the heavenly throne room, and they are reigning alongside with him. They are victorious with him. They are part of his kingdom reign it's a beautiful image as we see God's people gathered around God's throne. And then we move on in Revelation chapter four. And it says, from the throne, if you wanna back up one slide, from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbles and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. So what's this talking about? Well, John is letting us know that God is fully present in this place, in his throne room. Remember the rumbles of thunder and the flashes of lightning? That should take us back to Mount Sinai, back in the book of Exodus. Remember when God descended on the mountain? And when he did, it says there was thunder and lightning everywhere and it scared the people to death. It scared the people so much when God's presence descended on the mountain that the people, the Israelites, turned to Moses and said, Moses, we don't wanna talk to God anymore. Don't let God fully show up anymore. He scares us to death every time he comes on the scene. You just talk to God and you tell us what he says. I mean, they were terrified when God descended on the mountain. And this takes us back to this moment, but I want you to notice now God's people aren't scared they are worshiping him around the throne and then what's interesting is it says that there were seven lamps and these seven lamps it's a different Greek word than lampstands we saw earlier in the book it actually just means torch there were seven torches there these seven torches are the seven spirits of God the number seven is important seven means fullness completeness meaning God's spirit is fully present in this place in other words, God isn't partially there. It's not like he's just speaking, but we can't see him. In this moment, God is fully on the scene. 
And we are welcome in this scene. It's a powerful, powerful moment. And as we read on, John continues and he says, also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. What is this talking about? See, in the ancient world, the sea was the unknown. People were scared of the sea because it was uncertain and people died and they traveled on the sea. It was even a representation for chaos and evil in the world. People didn't like the sea. And yet in the throne room of God, there is a sea and this sea is perfectly calm. And it's clear. You can see through it. Nothing's going to sneak up on you. You know what's coming. It is at total peace. Why? Because in the presence of God, there is no chaos. There is no evil. There is no uncertainty. In the presence of God, everything is calm. It's a beautiful picture. John continues by telling us that in the center around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face of a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. Now again, numbers are important. The number four is told here. The number four always represented in apocalyptic literature, the earth. There were four winds of the earth, four corners of the earth, four seasons on the earth. Four is symbolic of the earth. And these are four creatures from the earth. And notice how they are described. The first is like a lion. The lion represented the king of all the wild beasts. Then the next is an ox, which represented the king of all the domesticated animals. And then you had the face of a man, which represents all of humankind. And then you have one who's like an eagle, meaning all the creatures of the air. What John here is telling us is that all living beings, all creatures, all of creation is bowing down and worshiping God Almighty in this powerful moment. The creation is finally giving God the praise and the glory that he deserves. And then we continue on. It says, each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. See, this moment is intended to leave us speechless as we see all of creation, both human and angelic alike, bowing down before God Almighty, shaking the very foundations of heaven and earth with their praise. It's supposed to give us goosebumps as we see God reigning in total control on his throne. And what this is reminding of us, us of, is that what we see going on around us every day isn't what's real. The authority that Caesar claimed to have in the first century world, it wasn't real. The authority that Satan claims to have in this world, it isn't real. All the powers of darkness is just a charade. Real power, real authority is found in the heavenly throne room where God reigns over all. And you know, Sometimes I will hear people pray this prayer. They will say, they're in church, and they'll say, as we leave this place, 
and we go out into the real world, be with us and so on and so on. And I know that people pray that prayer in their well-meaning, but it's backwards. You got it all wrong. Guys, what's out there isn't what's real. What's out there is phony. Caesar is only posing as king. Satan is only pretending to be the prince of this world. The darkness that's out there, its reign will be short-lived. Our suffering, our pain is only temporary. What's out there is phony and fake. What we do in here is real. Because in here, we worship the one who is truly on the throne, the eternal throne, the lasting throne, the one who will not be defeated. And here we worship the one who has a plan for his creation and is making sure that his plan is being carried out. We worship what's real in this place. And if you don't believe that, then you're not gonna be able to do the tough stuff that God is asking you to do out there. We are being called to look up and see a greater reality. And when I think about what's going on in this passage, it gives me goosebumps. Because the almighty God who spoke everything into existence, who destroyed the earth by flood, who knocked down the Tower of Babel, who parted the Red Sea so his people could cross safely, who knocked down the walls of Jericho, who defeated giants, who made the sun stand still, who came to the earth as a man, who walked on water, who healed the lame and the sick and the diseased, who calmed the storms, who literally walked out of the grave and defeated death forever. That same God who is still on his throne reigning is with us and is on our side. And because of that, when evil's out doing its thing, we can keep moving forward because we know who's on the throne. And the one who's on the throne has a plan for us. That's why I love what happens next. We, we were in Revelation chapter four, but chapter five is a continuation. And in chapter five, what we find out is that the one seated on the throne, God Almighty, has a scroll in his hand. And the scroll represents God's decreed plan for his creation, God's decreed plan for humanity. And it's sealed up with seven seals. And there's no one in the throne room who's able to open up God's plan. In other words, there's no one who's able to carry out this plan. What good is having a plan if no one can carry out? So John the apostle who's seeing all this starts to weep and to cry because God has a plan, but there's nobody who's worthy enough to carry out the plan. And just then as John is crying, look at what verse five says. Then one of the elders said to me, notice one of God's people, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll in it, seven seals. In other words, John, this great apostle who walked and talked with Jesus is crying and weeping and upset. Why? Because he has lost sight of Jesus. There's somebody in the throne room that he hasn't noticed yet and it's Jesus and one of God's people, one of the members of his church comes up to John and says, don't weep. 
This Christian, whoever he is, who has been suffering, is saying, you've taken your eyes off of Jesus. You're looking at this from an earthly perspective. You've got to look at it from a heavenly perspective. You have forgotten about the Lion of Judah. You have forgotten about Jesus who has triumphed. And because he has triumphed over sin and death and the grave, he is able to open the scroll. He is able to carry out God's plan. God's plan will be fulfilled because of the Lion of Judah. And the lion was a symbol in the ancient world of power and strength and might. In fact, Rome used the lion as one of its symbols to represent its kingdom reign. Kind of like how we have the bald eagle as one of our symbols for freedom. They had the lion as a symbol of strength for the empire. And so John turns expecting to see this fierce, ferocious lion, the lion of Judah, who can go toe-to-toe with Rome and go toe-to-toe with Satan and go toe-to-toe with the evils of this world. He expects to see this fierce beast. And when John turns to see the lion of Judah, look at what the text says. Then I saw a lamb. Looking as if it had been slain standing in the center of the throne. Then I saw a lamb. Why the change of imagery? Why are we told Jesus is the Lion of Judah? And John turns to see this fierce beast and instead he sees a lamb and not just any lamb, a wounded lamb, a lamb that had been sacrificed a lamb that had been slain. It's because God is trying to tell us something. God's gonna win this thing, but he's not gonna do it as we might expect. God's gonna win this thing. He's gonna win back his creation. He's gonna win back us. He's gonna win this war against evil, but he's not gonna do it with the weapons of this world. He's going to do it with the relentless, self-sacrificial love of the Lamb. Because any kingdom that rules by the sword is a fifth-rate kingdom. But a kingdom that rules the heart is a first-rate kingdom. And Jesus came and died in our place to show how much he loved us. And by his wounds we are healed. By his wounds evil is defeated. The blood of the Lamb is Satan's kryptonite. And Satan cannot stand up to the blood of the Lamb. God is gonna be victorious, but he's not gonna do it as we might expect. He's not gonna do it with the weapons and the powers of this world. He's going to do it with self-sacrificial love. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is not that God so loved the world that he wanted to usher in World War III. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that God so loved the world that he sent his son to die for you and for me. And because he died for you and me, he is victorious and we are victorious with him. And that's why when Satan's out doing his thing right now, and when it looks like evil is winning, we've got to look to the lamb. Because the lamb's going to win. And he's never going to have to fire a shot. He's going to do it with his self-sacrificial love. I have this sign hanging up in my office here at the church. My wife made it for me because she knows Revelation 5, 6 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Then I saw a lamb. Because when I have stressful days, when I get ready to leave my office to go deal with some problem or whatever, I want to be reminded to look to the lamb. 
Because as bad as things may seem around me, the lamb has a plan and the lamb will carry out that plan. Nothing's gonna be able to stop him. And I wanna look to him. And that's why in the book of Revelation, from here on out, you won't see Jesus listed as the lion of Judah anymore. It's lamb power from here on out because this is how God's gonna win this thing. And right now, I don't know what you're going through, but if you're struggling, the key to making it through this life is looking to the lamb. I remember after I'd been in full-time ministry for a couple years, our church, the church I was serving at the time was going through a crisis. There was a problem that had happened, nothing that I did, but it was kind of a scandal. And I was having to deal with it because I was a senior minister of that church and I was really discouraged, like really discouraged to the point that I thought evil was winning in our church. And I even thought about, maybe I need to get out of ministry. Maybe ministry isn't for me. And I went to a conference at the college that I attended because my wife told me to. I didn't wanna go, but she told me we needed to go because she thought I needed some encouragement. And on the last day of the conference, I was still down the entire time. There was a worship service. And during that worship service, they were singing the song. We don't sing it much anymore, but it used to be big called Christ is Risen. It says, Christ has risen from the grave. Come awake, come awake, come and rise up from the grave. And there's a line in that song that says, oh death, where is your sting? Oh death, where is your victory? Our God is not dead, he's alive, he's alive. And when that line was sung, I saw a man stand up who'd been sitting the entire time. And I recognized him, he was one of my former professors and I knew he'd been diagnosed recently with terminal, very aggressive cancer. He'd only been given a few months to live, but he was there in that worship service. And when that line said he stood up and he was weak but he held his weak frail hand in the air and he shouted oh death where is your sting oh hell where is your victory our God is not dead he's alive he's alive why was he able to do that because he wasn't looking at his cancer in that moment he was looking to the lamb I remember during 2020 when I would preach in this room to an empty room because we were all meeting online. There was nobody in the room besides our worship team, some tech people, and basically Matt Thomason and me. And Matt and I would sit on this front row over here and our worship team would do a worship service that you guys would watch online. And I remember those first couple weeks being full of uncertainty and being a little bit scared and not knowing what the future was gonna hold, but we would worship and one song we sang throughout that period was a song, Waymaker. And as I started seeing those words, Waymaker, promise keeper, miracle worker, light in the darkness. I knew that, that the lamb was greater than anything we were dealing with. And the lamb was gonna get us through this and he did. And I remember just a few, just, just over a year ago, being in the hospital with my wife, not knowing what our future was gonna hold. And as she was hooked up to machines and as doctors were taking care of her, we watched a worship service online from First Church and we sang the song, Christ is our firm foundation. And as we sang that song in our hospital room, we began to cry and weep tears of joy because we knew that no matter what happened, we still had hope because we weren't looking at the walls around us. We weren't looking at the hospital staff. We weren't looking at the machines and we weren't looking to the medicine. We were looking to the lamb who was slain. And we knew that we would be victorious with him. So today, I don't know where you are, but be warned, kingdoms of men. 
Shudder in fear, Satan and your minions. Be encouraged, O church, because the great I am is on the throne and his lamb is going to carry out his plan. If you would stand with me and let's worship the lamb.